In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. All right, let's start from the outset by being honest with one another. How often do you read a book's introduction? Of course, not counting any books written by any pastors, uh, any members, so Zane, Sebastian, Matt. Of course, we read yours all the time, but I confess I probably read other books' introduction uh, 50% of the time, give or less, more or take. Give or less, more or take. So why do we skip it? I think a lot of introductions feel like they're sort of for introduction's sake. They don't actually provide much of anything. Done well, though, introductions are really helpful. Good intros give a clear and concise idea of where the rest of the book is headed. It's sort of like a well-shot movie trailer. It introduces some of the main characters, hints at some of the major plot points to come. It sets the hook. It makes you want to keep listening or to keep reading. And ideally, it does some with a it does it with a little oomph, right? A little gravitas. A good introduction persuades you to keep going. For example, this amazing sermon introduction. <laughs> Today we're going to be looking at the introduction to the book of Hebrews. So if you turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1. The author, whoever he is, we don't know. Uh, we're actually studying Hebrews on Thursday mornings at 6.30, so if you know, we're going to all try to figure it out and then uh, report back to you. But what, what he's doing essentially is preaching one long sermon. He wants his audience to have the biggest, the most glorious picture of Jesus that he knows how to conjure up from God's Word. And so he unleashes this 13-chapter sermon. So if you think that the sermons here you normally hear are long, uh, it's not 13 chapters worth at least. And this, this sermon is filled with explanations of Old Testament passages, uh, really thorny warning passages that if you read them for the first time out of context will frankly freak you out a little bit, and even encouragements not to and that want to worship angels. But for what can feel like an overwhelming book, it really makes one big point. Jesus is the best. He's the best in every way, so don't give up on him or you'll be lost. Don't give up on him or else. Like a good introduction, verses 1 through 4 make that argument in miniature. Our passage this morning represents all of Hebrews jam-packed into four verses. So I think the main point of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and thus the point of this sermon is something like this. Put your hope in God's Son, Jesus. He's the only one worthy of it. Put your hope in God's Son, Jesus. He's the only one worthy of it. The people who first heard this sermon were tempted to throw in the towel. Some of them had their stuff taken because of their faith in Jesus. Some of them had been thrown in jail. Giving up on Jesus was starting to make a lot of sense to them. So this book starts by giving three reasons that Jesus 
is better than anything else that they might put their hope in. Three reasons to keep following after Jesus, to keep believing. And these are going to be the three points of our sermon as well. So point one, Jesus is God's final word. You find that in verses one and two. Second, Jesus is God's son, which we'll find is a very loaded phrase. And then third, Jesus is God's finished sacrifice. There's three reasons why our hope should only belong in Jesus. Because Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's finished sacrifice. Do you ever think about giving up on Jesus? Are you tired this morning of putting one spiritual foot in front of the other? If you aren't a Christian, what do you think is at stake if you ultimately reject this Jesus? Well, I pray that God would use our time together this morning to show you how unique Jesus is and how that makes him worth all your trust. So let's look at point one. Jesus is God's final word. Verse one says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The author is setting up the contrast that gives the entire book of Hebrews its shape. Hebrews is all about the balance between continuity and discontinuity. What's the same and how God's dealt with his people? And now that Jesus is on the scene, what's different? The original audience was buying into a, a deadly form of nostalgia. They were casting wistful eyes back on the good old days of the old covenant, the arrangement that God made with the people of Israel. Most likely because their newfound faith in Jesus was starting to cost them. Our author wants them to understand that going backwards in redemptive history is self-defeating because all the stuff in the past in redemptive history, the things that they are tempted to go back to, were meant to point them forward to Jesus in the first place. But note this. God, uh, God in his word here in the author isn't trying to deny the validity of the Old Testament, the inspiration of the Old Testament. He doesn't deny that God revealed himself to folks like Abraham, Moses, David, that he spoke powerfully through people, burning bushes, even a donkey once. The Old Testament contains true revelation about God, even if it's in seed form, that it'll develop over time. I think if the original audience was tempted to place too much emphasis on the Old Testament, to want to go back to it as if it were the point, I think that we're tempted in the opposite direction. Sometimes we treat the Old Testament like a show we're watching on Netflix or Amazon Prime. The episode recap comes up, and we're thinking, yeah, 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 skip, click. Get to the good part, right? But brothers and sisters, let's adopt the attitude towards the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews shows here. Read it. Worship the God that you see in it. Give him praise for the attributes that he shows, his holiness, his love, his, his grace. And then let it point you to the Jesus who fulfills it all. That's the continuity. The same God who spoke in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is still speaking. But here comes the discontinuity. What's different? Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The preacher is, is locating them in redemptive history like a sign at the mall. 
You are here. Not here, we're here. God spoke through the prophets many times and in many ways as other translations say, but in these last days where we are now, God has spoken to us by His Son. What do you think when you hear last days? I think most of us think the apocalypse, right? Movies like 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow or Left Behind. But the Bible doesn't use the phrase that way. Whatever your eschatology, what you think the Bible teaches about the end times, you have to reckon with the fact that the Bible describes the period between Jesus' resurrection and his return as the last days. The author of Hebrews does it here. The Apostle John does the same thing in 1 John 2.18. Jude and Peter in their letters follow suit as well. These last days is the era of King Jesus and the new covenant that he brings. The arrival of Christ marks the beginning of the final act of the story. God's narrative coming to completion. The author wants again for them to see that it makes absolutely no sense to go back to the laws and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Revelation, God telling us about himself, goes forward. It doesn't go backwards. In Jesus, we have the goal of everything that God had been telling telling us about himself all along. Revelation is completed because the Redeemer has arrived. The Old Covenant was sort of like seeing a friend's shadow coming around the corner. You're meeting up for coffee and you're sitting at the table outside and you see their their shadow coming. So you know it's them. It's really them. It makes you anticipate their arrival. But the New Covenant is like when your friend rounds the corner. You see each other face to face. You wouldn't ask them to turn around and go back so you could see their shadow again, would you? Of course you wouldn't. Jesus is the substance that those Old Testament shadows pointed to. Why in the world would you go back to those? Before we move on, I don't want it to be lost on us how crazy, how utterly insane it is that the God of the universe has spoken to us at all. Just brush past that. In the past, God spoke, yeah, you're right, through the ancestors, now in these last days, Jesus. But we shouldn't take it for granted that God would would want to speak to us at all. He certainly wasn't obligated to. And if he didn't, we wouldn't know anything about him, which would be fine because we are rebels. We have nothing to claim of his. That means God relates to us, not because he has to, but because he wants to. My non-Christian friend, how does that sit with you? that God relates to us not because he has to, but because he wants to. In our fallenness, we tend to think of love as a a quid pro quo, right? You give me something, I give you something. Our motivations and our relationships default to what we think we can get out of it or what we're forced to do, what we're constrained to do for one reason or another. But friend, God doesn't love that way. He doesn't need anything from us. He's been eternally good within himself from all eternity and will be for all eternity. And yet, he's spoken to us. And not just in a word of judgment, which we deserved, he's spoken to us in his son. If the world is run by this kind of God, friend, what does that mean for you this morning? We should put our hope in Jesus 
Because Jesus is God's final word. Point two, verses two or three, we see that we should only put our hope in Jesus because he is God's son. Okay, so God has spoken to us in his son, but who is he? What does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? Does it emphasize Jesus' eternal identity as the second person of the Trinity? God the Son? Or does the author have Jesus' humanity in mind? You have this kind of scholarly tug of war. You know, these scholars are really into their, their rugged old school games. So they're playing tug of war and one, one set on the one side is saying, Son means that he's God. And they're like, no, it's not. Son means that he's man. And the author of Hebrews will walk up and say, hey, drop the rope. The answer is yes. Son pulls double duty in our text. Jesus is God the Son and the Son of Man. And as we'll see, we need him to be both in order to save us. But look how the text shows Jesus' divinity. It does it in three ways. Look at verse 2. Jesus, he said, has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. Jesus was there in the beginning when the world was created. What was he doing? Creating. Not being created, but creating, working inseparably with the Father and with the Spirit. In the divide between creature and creator, Jesus is firmly on the creator side. In case you're curious, this is what separates Christianity from, say, Islam or Mormonism. Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is not the creation of the Father. He is the creator of everyone and everything. Shout out to the second question of the New City Catechism, kids' version. God is the creator of everyone and everything. Second, we see Jesus shares in the one divine nature. He's identified directly with God's godness. Verse 3, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you'll indulge me to dive into the weeds for one second, this image gives us a window into the most beautiful, mysterious truth in all Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity. We see that the Son is distinct from the Father and yet directly identified with the Father. They have the same source, the same substance, the same divine being, and yet they can be distinguished like light radiating from the Son. No wonder the Nicene Creed, which is just a, a summary of the Bible's teaching about Jesus in particular, when describing how Jesus is fully God, says this, that he's God of God, light of light. Very God of very God. The second phrase tells us the same. We're on the right track. The Son is the exact representation of God's being. Want to know what God is like? Look at the Son. That's why in texts like John 14, 9, Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The disciples say, Jesus, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. They share the same divine, eternal essence. Third, Jesus is God because he's the one sustaining the universe by the word of his power. 
One Bible commentator wrote this about Hebrews 1, 2-3, these three expressions. It says, These three expressions place the Son at the origins of all things with God, sustaining things in the present, and receiving all things at the end. We hope in God because He is the eternal Son of God. Hope in Jesus because He is the eternal Son of God. But Jesus being God isn't enough. Jesus being God is not enough to save us. To save us, we need Jesus to be human too. God created Adam in the beginning as his son. A son made to love and to obey his father. But he didn't. We know that, right? Adam, Eve turned away from God. That mantle was picked up by the nation of Israel. Supposed to represent God, obey Him, love Him as their Father, enjoy Him above all else. They didn't fare much better. 2 Samuel 7, the king who's going to sit on David's throne is called God's son. He will be to me a son, I will be to him a father. The Israel's kings bowed down to idol after idol after idol, and the people that they led did the same. When we've all done the same as well. Even if we don't even know it, we, we've all rebelled against the Lord. We've all turned our backs on Him. Each and every one of us were made in relation to God as people made in His image. We're all responsible to submit to Him, to enjoy Him, to worship Him as our Father. And yet, each and every one of us has failed. Not only have we failed, we've refused to give Him the honor that He's due. That's what the Bible calls sin. And that sin has earned us God's just wrath, not a seat at the family table. But God promised a son who would come, who would obey where we've rebelled. That's why God the Son became the Son of Man. The eternal second person of the Trinity took on flesh, took on a human nature like ours to rescue us from ourselves. The eternal Son became the perfect incarnate Son to make us adopted sons and daughters. Jesus earned our right standing before God. He offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the dead, triumphant over death and the grave. And Jesus' identity and His work as the perfect human son qualifies him to invite you and me to become God's children. If we'll repent of our sins, place our faith in him, throw all of our hope upon him alone. Jesus earned the gift of the Spirit through whom we cry, Abba, Father, enabling us to respond to him in loving obedience for all eternity. This idea of Jesus being the perfect human son is how we make sense of some of the verbs in this passage. How he can be appointed the heir of all things. You're like, well, he's God, isn't he the heir of all things? Well, it makes sense because he's the son who became the son. He made purification for our sins by dying as an atoning sacrifice, which uh, God is not able to die. He's spirit. He took on a human nature, the second person of the Trinity, so that he can die as only a human can do. Verse 4 says he's become superior to uh, the angels. Well, isn't he already superior? Well, yes, he was, and now he is double time. 
That's how he can inherit a name that's superior to theirs. The only way that this can be true is if the Son means both that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That he's two what's and one who. And he's both at the same time. He will be both at the same time forever without separation or mixing the two natures. He struggled for breath on the cross, bearing the sins of the world while upholding that same word, world by the word of his power. The king, by divine right, became the king by his perfect human life and glorious resurrection. Hope in Jesus because he's the perfect son of man. Let's pull back just a second. I know there hasn't been much application in this point, and I apologize. Sort of. We strive here at RCBC to be excellent appliers of God's word. We don't want to be like the man in James who sees himself in a mirror and then turns around and forgets what he's seen. Theology without life change is deadly. It's useless. Demon faith, as uh, one old New England guy once said. But theology that skips over doxology en route to practical application isn't any good either. Let's be careful of of skipping past praising God so that we can get to the payoff. Well, that's cool, but what does that mean for us? It's not a bad question. It just doesn't have to be the first question. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, nothing is going to help you face a crazy work week, transition into being an empty nester, or contend with toddlers, Amen. more than considering the beauty of Jesus Christ, the God-man. We become like what we behold. The Spirit transforms us as we get a clearer and clearer picture of Jesus through the eyes of faith. Good theology helps us get that clear picture. The doctrines of the Bible are like logs on the fire of our faith. Do it the right way, and the more you heap on, the more your flame will burn as you go along. Brothers and sisters, consider Jesus, the Son who became the Son. Point number three, Jesus is God's finished sacrifice. Jesus is God's finished sacrifice. We've seen that the audience was considering going backwards in redemptive history, right? Leaving Jesus and going back to the good old days. They must have been especially enticed by the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system because about half of the book is dedicated to explaining Jesus' relation to the laws and the rituals that made up Old Testament worship. Just to give you a recap of what went on under the Old Covenant, God provided, by His grace, a system of sacrifices for his old covenant people so that he could live with them. They were unholy. He was holy. That made a problem. This was God's solution. God showed grace by providing a way for his sinful people to be in his presence through mediators. Priests stood in the gap between Israel and their Lord. Day after day, week after week, the sights, the sounds, the smells of animals being put to death reminded them or it was supposed to remind them to repent, to recognize who they are, and to trust in the provision of God's grace. 
But as time went on, the old covenant with the sacrificial system at the very center started to show its limitations. The author of Hebrews highlights a few crucial ones throughout the book, but particularly in Hebrews 7 with the priesthood. Let's run through them quickly. The old covenant, as wonderful as it was, as true as it was, isn't worth going back to because, one, the priest kept dying. Two, they had to make sacrifices for their own sins. Not just the sins of the people. They had to deal with themselves before they could deal with other people. Three, they had to make sacrifices daily. An elaborate schedule, an elaborate calendar of sacrifices to deal with the people's sin. Hebrews 10.4 puts a bow on it this way. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That seems important, doesn't it? And it's not like we, we have the proof as Israel's history progresses. It's not like the sacrifices were doing much to change the real problem that was inside Israel, their hearts. The same thing that's our problem as well. Hearts turned in on themselves away from God. But here's the thing. Those limitations were baked into the sacrificial system. It's not like God was like, that did not work. Uh, I'm going to have to think of something else. Plan A is out the window. What do we have for plan B? Jesus, that will work. The limitations of the old covenant were meant to point forward to a new covenant, one that would be able to provide full and final salvation for God's people, guarantees the forgiveness of sins, and the transforming power of God's Spirit. Look at the end of verse 3 again. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Friends, with just one sentence, can't you see how much better Jesus is as a priest than his Old Testament counterparts, as the ones that were pointing forward to him? First things first, sacrifice was eternally effective. The Old Testament sacrifices only provided a temporary solution. We found out this week that our house has quest pipes. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant either until uh, the guy came and told us. They're old pipes that wear out when you run water through them. <laughs> we thought we had an AC issue because it was leaking, leaking through the AC vent. And I don't, I don't know if that seemed to make sense. So we called the AC guy. And he says it's a cracked old pipe, a Quest pipe, which he said was very dumb to have in your house. And I said, well, I didn't put it there. <laughs> but he told us, you know, he could put a clamp on it to hold it off for a little while, but it won't be long until we're going to need a major renovation. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't like that. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't a stopgap. On the cross, Jesus wiped away all of our sin. He drank every drop of God's wrath that we had earned. He paid our debt in full. Christ didn't provide a way for us to become pure. He achieved our purification. Don't you love the image of Jesus sitting down? He makes purifications for sin and then he sits down. The old covenant priest stood day after day after day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And Jesus makes a sacrifice once and he sits down. Why does he sit down? It is finished. The work is done. Are you anxious this morning, brother, sister? 
feel like you've outsinned God's grace this week? Do you think you're too filthy to ever be qualified to be a part of God's family? Jesus taking a seat means you have a standing reservation around his throne for all eternity. Because unlike those old priests, when Jesus died, he got back up. Later, the author says that Jesus' perfect priesthood is by the virtue of the power of an indestructible life, which means he is now at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty in heaven, praying for us, interceding for us, helping us by the gift of the Spirit to keep fighting for faith, to put one step in front of the other. We enter God's presence and can expect Not just hope for it, expect grace and mercy at the present time because our older brother is sitting right there. I got him. Don't take your sin to anybody else. You won't find moral cleansing by being environmentally responsible, aligning with the right political party, or going to church every week. The stain of sin that is in our hearts can't be wiped clean except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Come to him. Trust in him. Your sin, yourself, all the things that you're putting your hope in will ultimately let you down. But Jesus never will. Listen to the last verse of this hymn called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Here in Jesus, we have a firm foundation. Here, the refuge for the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation. His, the name which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None, none shall ever be confounded whom on him their hope have built. Jesus alone deserves our hope because Jesus alone can handle it. All of this for the author is meant to spur them on, to inspire them in the best sense of the word, to keep going. The Spirit takes all of this rich truth about who Jesus is and lifts it up before the eyes of their hearts to keep them going spiritually. It's normal to feel weary. We've all felt our hearts drift from the Lord in one way or the other to various degrees. But we all know that it's hard to swim against the stream. We know the tug of sin in our own hearts. But the author of Hebrews is convinced, I'm convinced this morning, that if our hearts are captured by this Jesus, God's final word, the Son who became the Son, the ultimate purifying sacrifice, we will, however slowly, however imperfectly, make progress to glory. Brothers and sisters, this morning, keep going. Keep going, take small steps each and every day to behold the glory of the Son as we find Him in God's Word. Don't throw away your hope by looking to someone else. Guess what? We're going to help each other do it. We promise to help each other do it. As members of this church, we are responsible as long as the day is called today to gather under God's Word, to scheme of ways to encourage one another in the Gospel, and stir one another up to love and good deeds. Friend, every conversation you have in the lobby, every text that you send saying, I'm praying for you, brother, praying for you, sister, 
Every time you sit across the table and open the word together, or just ask, what's been tough about following Jesus this week? That's church membership. That's how God keeps our eyes on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God's provided everything that we need to make it home safely. He's spoken to us in his son, the perfect son of God who became the son of man. Let's press on together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your son who by the power of your spirit makes us new. We are united to him and have confidence forever that everything that we need to be able to enjoy you forever has been accomplished and secured. Help us then to live out of that assurance, putting sin to death, putting on righteousness until the day that we see you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.